Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. The right-wingers are staking out the hardware stores. This is the latest uh, in the anti-Biden conspiracy theories. Lumber truthers. The price of lumber is up. It's up in some cases as much as two or three hundred percent in some parts of the country. Now, there's a number of reasons for this. The first reason is that there is incredible demand for housing right now. It requires lumber to build houses. There's been all this pent-up demand during the year of the COVID. We're going to see a lot of dislocations and things in the marketplace here over the next year. So there's a lot of demand for lumber, number one. Number two, people were stuck in their houses for a year, and a lot of people did remodeling. I mean, you know, places like the Home Depot and whatnot, especially if they deliver out to your car, contact-free delivery, were just shoveling stuff out the door. Because people were doing things around the house because, hey, they were stuck. And number three, and actually I think this may be number one, this may be the most important one. We had this bomb cyclone, remember this? Where Arctic air came down literally from the North Pole all the way down to Texas and destroyed literally over a million homes. Pipes bursting, walls being busted apart by water, floors collapsing, things like that. And what was the result of that? The price of copper is exploding right now. Those pipes have to be replaced. In many cases, the wiring is being replaced. And the walls had to be replaced. Sheetrock and wallboard and lumber are in demand. But now we've got these guys with cameras. Remember when COVID was going on and they were showing up in the parking lots of hospitals with video cameras going, or with you know cell phones or whatnot, putting it on YouTube, going, there's no cars in the parking lot. How can they have a COVID epidemic? How can their ICU be full if there's no cars in the parking lot? Well, it's because those people were brought in by ambulance and because their family can't visit them. That's why, I mean, you know, it was kind of obvious. Well, now they're doing it with train loads of lumber just stacked up. Oh, my God. This one video has been seen over half a million times in uh, Zero Hedge, the pro-Donald Trump blog, as proof that lumber prices were being artificially inflated. We know that, uh, this, according to CDC, as of yesterday, there were 576,238 Americans who had died of COVID. According to a study a little more recent study, 400,000 of those deaths were absolutely unnecessary and were attributable to the mismanagement by Donald Trump and Jared Kushner. But now the uh, Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, this uh, international group that looks at death rates in countries, has a new number. They say that actually the number of Americans who have died from COVID is 905,289, 900,000. You know, we know that Ron DeSantis was undercounting down in Florida. And this woman tried to bust him for it, and he had the police come in and kick in her door and steal her computers. This has been happening in red state after red state. It is a pretty grim story. This was over at Daily Coast, so I encourage you to check that out. Thomas in Mossy Head, Florida. Hey, Thomas, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, uh, I'm sure you heard the saying, kill them with kindness. I think I found a way to have a conversation with a Republican without going to blows, so to speak. I was at my veterinarian, which is up in Alabama, lower Alabama, and this redneck was in there. First thing out of his mouth was that Biden and and, uh, Pulaski, I guess she meant 
<laughs> you know. Anyway, I go, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm ruining this country. I go, really? How's that? He goes, oh, it's socialist. They're giving everything away. I said, well, you're, you're a smart man. Uh, where do you send back that $1,400 check? Uh, he kind of cocked his head like trying to teach algebra to the dog. Anyway, we went <laughs> on and on. Yeah, we went on and on. He just rattled stuff off like crazy, you know, straight off a box and, and all that. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we got on the topic of uh, the vaccination. And uh, I said, what do you think about the vaccination? He said, oh, God, no. He goes, don't get one. They'll make you gay. I said, really? He goes, yeah, it'll make you gay. They're not telling anybody that, but it's going to make you gay. I said, holy cow. He goes, you didn't get one, did you? I go, yeah, I did. He goes, oh, no. And about that time, the nurse called me back to see the vet. And I turned around and looked at him and went, you know what? Now I think about it, you're kind of cute. <laughs> <laughs> She was just rubbing it in their face. Oh, oh yeah. God. Thomas. Nurse was cracking up. She goes, that was the nurse yeah. I heard. <laughs> Making fun of his ridiculous beliefs, not of gay people, uh, clearly. But, you know, yeah, I totally get it. Thomas, uh, good stories. Thank you very much. Thanks for sharing it with us. One other thing I wanted to quickly mention, then I'm going to pick up your phone calls here, was this whole gain-of-function thing. Rand Paul went off on this at some length, and he's following on Alex Jones and the, you know, the, the latest right-wing conspiracy, which is, in essence, that you know, the function of a virus is to replicate. If you can make that virus replicate faster, in other words, make it more contagious, make it more virulent, make it more deadly. That's called improving gain of function in science, apparently. And somebody told one of these right-wingers that, hey, there's this scientific term, gain of function. And in bioweapon laboratories, this is what they do. They're trying to make biological weapons more potent. I remember years ago, they were in 2000, what was it, 2001, I think it was, after 9-11, anthrax showing up in the offices of Democratic senators and, and his media. And it turned out it was anthrax that had come from Fort Detrick, as I recall, or from one of our military labs, because it had been weaponized. It had been aerosolized. Anthrax typically doesn't travel through the air, but this was specially designed to travel through the air. In other words, it was a biological weapon. And so what Rand Paul was asserting this morning was that when the United States was hooking up with the Wuhan Virology Lab to look into these coronaviruses, and this started back 15 years ago when the first or 20, maybe even 20 years ago, when the first SARS virus got out and killed a bunch of people. This was in the early 2000s, if you recall. And we stopped that in about four months. And so we were working with the Wuhan Virology Lab to look at these viruses that are coming, these coronaviruses that are coming out of bats, because that first SARS virus was incredibly deadly. And what Senator Rand Paul was asserting, essentially, was that somehow Anthony Fauci was in on funding research by the Chinese government to make these viruses more potent, this gain of function. And that that's a bad thing. And Fauci kept saying, no, we weren't. We didn't fund any research like that. We don't know of any research like that. That's not the kind of research we were doing and are participating in in Wuhan. Maybe the Chinese are doing that kind of research someplace. Maybe they're even doing it there and we didn't know about it. But that's not what we were funding. That's not what we're working on. And that's not what NIH and CDC are working on in the United States. Now, there may be a weapons lab someplace that is. In fact, I guarantee you there is. But that's not what Fauci's all about. But what the right-wingers are doing is they're taking this biological weapons development work, which is being done in the United States and in Russia and in China and probably in a dozen other countries, much to the danger and detriment of the entire world. If he wasn't bringing it up as bat guano crazy conspiracy theory crap, it would actually be a good conversation to have. Shouldn't we have an international ban on developing deadly viruses and bacteria the same way that we have an international ban on developing nuclear weapons? You know, there is a UN convention against biological weapons, but it's so weak and it's not enforced. And it's not, you know, I mean, it's, it's not like the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, you know, the SALT Treaty. So, you know, if he had brought it up that way, 
fine. But instead, what these guys are trying to do is they're trying to take down Anthony Fauci. And why are they trying to do that? Because he's now part of the Biden administration. Oh, my God. And in the process, he's, he, what Rand Paul is also trying to do is he's trying to cause people to be afraid of the vaccines. He's just trying to cause people to doubt science or to think that science is some kind of nefarious, evil thing that you can't trust and therefore don't get vaccinated. Now, why would he do something as stupid as that? Why would he do? Why would Rand Paul do something like that that, that is going to kill Americans that has already killed a half a million Americans? Why would he do that? Why would so many Republicans go along with him on that? Simple. Because if Joe Biden can't get control of this virus, he can't get the economy back in shape. And if Joe Biden can't get the economy back in shape in time for the 2022 elections, the Republicans have a chance of retaking the House of Representatives, maybe the Senate as well. That's it. That's what it's all about. There was no reality to what Rand Paul was saying. But it is echoing throughout the right-wing echo chamber. It's going to be on, I, I guarantee you, watch Fox News. Well, you shouldn't. It's like, it's like, it's like you know, recommending people bang their head against a cement wall. But I wouldn't want to wish that on you. But I guarantee you, they're going to be playing those clips of Rand Paul saying that. And they're going to be all over right-wing radio. And the reason that Republicans are promoting these lies about Anthony Fauci and about the virus and about Wuhan and all this other stuff is because they do not want Joe Biden to get this virus under control in the United States. They want more people to be skeptical about the science and therefore skeptical about the vaccine and therefore remain unvaccinated so we continue to have a COVID crisis. They love the COVID crisis. They think it helps them. To the Tom Hartman program. Put another way, the Republicans think that the, the best thing for their future is for more Americans to die. So remember when Donald Trump was trying to destroy Obamacare, he wanted to erase everything that America's first black president ever did. And there's no doubt in my mind that this was part of his white supremacist agenda. But it also, you know, was very profitable for the insurance companies. There were these little bridge plans that could not last more than 90 days, as I recall, where if you lost job A and you were going to job B and it took a, a month or so for job B's health insurance to kick in, you could buy a short-term plan that would cover you. Well, Trump expanded those to three years. So this guy, uh, his name is Corey Dowd. In the spring of 2019, he found himself unemployed. He was had left the Peace Corps and he was he got a new job, but he needed an insurance policy. He bought one of these Trump Care policies. Monthly premiums are only a hundred bucks each, and best of all, the the plan promised to cover up to a million dollars in claims. And a second claim up to 750000 He said, this is going to be great. He's 31 years old. He ended up with a $33,600 bill. So we got that. We've got these high deductible plans, which are killing Americans. And then, you know, we've got this creeping into the privatization of Medicare. So I wanted to get a, you know, a professional take on this. Somebody who really knows what they're doing. A former health insurance industry executive, Wendell Potter, is now the president for the Center for Health and Democracy. Business for Medicare for All org is the website. Uh, the Twitter handle, Wendell Potter, of course. And, and Wendell, you're still running Tarbell, too, right? I sure am. I'm on the, I chair the board for Tarbell. So thanks for mentioning that, too, Tom. Sure. That's T-A-R-B-E-L-L.org? That's correct. Yeah, thank you. Great. Great. So, so Wendell, tell me about what's the deal with these, these kind of three categories. I know you wrote an op-ed about, let's start with, the, with these high deductible health plans. You, you, you know, your title, Trump's high deductible health plans are killing Americans. Tell us about that. Well, they continue to kill Americans. And ever since the Affordable Care Act has passed, uh, even before that, but certainly since the Affordable Care Act has passed, deductibles have been creeping up and up and up. And even if you get your coverage through an Obamacare exchange, you could be on the hook, if you're an individual, for deductibles of $8,500, $8,550. And for a family, the maximum deductible is $1,100. Most people don't Which could have wipe out most American families. Oh, absolutely. Just about half of Americans don't have $400 in the bank, 
much less 17,000. So these right. these are just absurd. And just last year, some of those who were involved in crafting the Affordable Care Act acknowledged that that was a big mistake to allow insurance companies to continue to jack up these deductibles. And they increase every year. That was part of the law. Hmm. And uh, as a hmm. consequence, uh, Americans are underinsured. They're not able to pick up their prescriptions in many cases. They can't go to the doctor. If they have to have treatment, go to the emergency room or whatever, they get hit with big bills they can't pay. So a lot of these folks with insurance are winding up in bankruptcy or turning to GoFundMe. It's just an outrageous situation. Yeah, it, it really is. It's, it's obscene that this would even happen in the United States. Uh, Wendell, by the way, obscene. what's the title of your most recent book? Nation on the Take, How Big Money Corrupts Our Democracy and What We Can Do About It. That's right. I wanted to be sure to plug that, too, because it's an absolutely brilliant book, Nation on the Take by Wendell Potter. Wendell is our guest right now, business for F-O-R, business for Medicare for all.org. That's the principal website, right, Wendell? That's one. I've got another organization that I lead called Center for Health and Democracy.org. And the word democracy is in there. It's related to my last book because advocates for health care reform need to understand that the reason why we have such trouble getting the health care system we need is because the entrenched special interests, like the industry I used to work for, the health insurance business, spend so much money to influence elections and public policy that they can pretty much right. call the shots. In Washington, of the state and that's capital. not democracy. Yeah, and not that's democracy not democracy. You know that. So, I'm, Wendell yeah. Potter, tell me, tell me about these Medicare Advantage plans. I'm seeing more and more benefits being advertised by Joe Namath on TV, and yet I keep reading articles about people who are who get you know essentially screwed when they get really seriously sick or need long-term care, yep. and they have Medicare Advantage plans. What's the story there? It's a big scam. It's a big scam. And in my old job in the industry, I used to be a champion for these health plans. I even encouraged my parents to enroll in them. And I found out, and my mother did, is just what the limitations are. You're exactly right. As you get older, a lot of people try to disenroll. In other words, they try to get out of these plans and get back into traditional Medicare. It's not so easy. And I'll, I'll address that in a minute. But one of the reasons is because there are such limited providers available to you for long-term care, for skilled nursing care, that uh, you find that the care that you need from the providers you want to see just isn't available to you unless you pay an enormous amount of money out of your own pocket. And these plans are operated exactly like commercial, you know, like regular plans. They have small networks in many cases, very inadequate networks. They require prior authorization, which is another thing that people need to be aware of. That gives the health plan, the insurance company, the ability to say, no, we're not going to cover that. It's a big scam. Insurance companies have learned how to make money off of this program, though. It's become their big cash cow, and they spend enormous sums of money hiring people like Joe Namath, and others to uh, shill for these plans. So if we were to successfully go to Medicare for All and Medicare Advantage, which is now about a third of all Americans who have signed up for Medicare, right. have signed up for one of these Medicare Advantage programs, these scam programs that have been so aggressively promoted by Joe Namath and others on TV. If we were to go to Medicare for All, is this going to be the, the, you know, the snake in the woodpile or whatever? I, you know, I, is this going to be the thing that, that uh, you know, ultimately bites us, that attacks us? It could be. And Congress will have to address that because with improved Medicare for all, which is what we advocate for, there would be no need, no market for Vantage plans. The current program, the traditional Medicare program, needs to have more benefits. It does not cover dental or hearing or long-term care. Right. It doesn't cover vision. So that needs to be addressed. The out-of-pocket obligations are too high, too. So there needs to be a cap on that. You can be certain that the insurance industry will fight that. They make a lot of money on these Medicare supplement plans as well. Almost everyone, well, not everyone, but those who can't afford to buy a supplement policy do with traditional Medicare because it helps you cover your out-of-pocket costs. Right. That 20 percent, that skin in the game that the Republicans were insisting on back in the 60s when uh, LBJ yeah. put Medicare together. Um, exactly. Uh, they still talk about skin and, in the and, game. 
Yeah, and that skin in the game phrase, I mean, that was, li- I, I remember those times. And that yeah. phrase was on the news every single night. It was like, you know, oh, yeah. oh if you don't have skin <laughs> in the game, you're just going to exploit the system. You're just going to live in your doctor's office. That's what you're going to do. But really, that was put into place to provide a, an opening for the for-profit health insurance companies to make money on Medicare, right? Oh, it's true. And uh, when the Medicare program was created back in the 60s, it was modeled sort of like after private plans. But healthcare costs back then were not nearly as high as they are now. The programs, both private and public, have not kept up with the, the rising costs in healthcare costs. Medicare much better than private plans, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Remarkable stuff. Wendell Potter, businessformedicareforall.org, uh, Twitter handle at Wendell Potter, tarbell.org. And what's the other organization, Wendell? Centerforhealthanddemocracy.org. So check us out. Centerforhealthanddemocracy.org. Wendell Potter, it's great talking with you, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, this you too. is the Tom Hartman Program. Thomas in Mossy Head, Florida. Hey, Thomas, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I just had a quick question. I hear about uh, the Moderna vaccine, the other vaccine, very little about the Johnson & Johnson. I, I had the Johnson & Johnson shot, and, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're back and forth about the Moderna, but you don't hear anything about the Johnson & Johnson. And I even called my doctor and talked to the nurse. She said, oh, it's fine. You know, <laughs> thanks a lot. Mm-hmm. Have you heard any controversy about the Johnson & Johnson or... No, no controversy at all. There are a small number of women who have abnormally low levels of blood platelets who are vulnerable to blood clots as a side effect in the first week or three after they get the Johnson & Johnson shot. This is also true of the AstraZeneca shot because they use a similar technology. But that has been in the United States so far, I believe, six or seven women out of millions of shots. The Johnson and Johnson shots, when they came in with their initial approval, their so-called efficacy rate, in other words, how effective are they at preventing infections, was slightly lower than Pfizer's was. But Pfizer's was done, they did all their testing in the United States and Europe, or mostly, and it was all against the so-called wild COVID, the original COVID. Whereas Johnson & Johnson did a lot of their testing, about a half, I believe it was about half of their testing. I could be off on that, don't quote me on that, but I, I, it was in that neighborhood anyway, in South Africa. And the South African variant is kicking ass. It is breaking through in vaccinations and it did with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So the bottom line, in some cases, so the bottom line was that the J&J vaccine was like around roughly 70%, I think it was 68% effective in South Africa because of that variant, whereas the Pfizer vaccine was claiming 95% effectiveness. But when you compare the Pfizer vaccine against some of these variants, it's starting to drop. We don't know the percentage exactly. But the bottom line has to do, Thomas, I think the bottom line really has to do with the level of exposure that you get to virus after you're vaccinated. You know, I'm vaccinated with Pfizer, you're vaccinated with J&J. I think we're both probably about equally essentially immune to getting COVID. And if we do get it, it's unlikely that we will get really sick or that we will die. There's one variable that could tweak that, and I'll tell you about that after the break. But by and large, I think, you know, with the J&J vaccine, you're in real good shape. And I would be very happy that I had it if I were you, if that was what was available to me. I just took what was available. The only thing, you know, I showed up at the convention center here in Portland and it was like Pfizer. But I think you're in good shape, Thomas. Okay, well, listen, I appreciate it. I knew if I called you, I'd get an answer. Okay. Yeah, I'm not providing medical advice. Let me make that very clear. I'm not a doctor and I'm not your doctor. But, you know, in the context of the news and everything that I've been able to read and the medical journals that I read as well, it all looks good to me. Thomas, thank you for the call. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. 
And with NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And welcome back. Um, I had a caller just a minute ago who was asking about the J&J shot versus, you know, the Pfizer shot and things like that. And there's one point that I wanted to make. Again, I'm not making this point as like, I'm here to give you science. I'm not a scientist or I'm here to give you medical advice. I'm not a physician. Let me make that very clear. That said, everything I'm reading seems consistent with this. So let me just lay this out very quickly. One of the anti-vax stories that's going around, one of the one of the reasons that people are saying, oh, you know, you don't need the vaccine or the vaccine doesn't work. Here in Oregon, for example, this headline has been on my app for the Oregonian, our local newspaper, every day for over a week and a half now. So it's obviously a lot of people are reading it and sharing it. And what it says is that 611 fully vaccinated people in Oregon got coronavirus and got it bad enough that they needed you know, some sort of medical intervention, or at least to be tested, and that eight of them died, which is true. Which means that, obviously, you know, if you say that a vaccine is 95% effective, you're going to have a 5%, what's called breakthrough. 5% of people are going to get sick, and some small percentage of them are going to die. And so the question up to this point was, how do you maximize the protection that you get from the vaccine itself? Now, what some people are doing is they're saying, hey, I'm vaccinated, but I'm still not going to leave the house until we get herd immunity in this country. I think that's probably more cautious than you need to be. Louise and I, for the first time since March 10th of last year, for the first time in more than a year, Louise and I went to a restaurant. It was a little Mexican restaurant right across the river from us. And they had outdoor tables where the outdoor tables were literally six feet apart. And we were upwind of everybody, so, you know, we weren't breathing anybody else's anything. The waiter was, you know, fastidious about wearing a mask. Everything was great. It was a wonderful meal. And, you know, we're starting to get back. So what is the thing that causes these breakthrough infections? Again, not medical advice, and I'm not saying that this is the science. But what I'm reading, when you look at the scientific papers where they're able to identify these so-called breakthrough cases where people have been vaccinated and they get sick with COVID, is that they were almost universally, at least, again, few studies on this, but almost universally exposed to large quantities of the virus. They sat in a closed room with somebody who had an active case of COVID, didn't realize it. You know, you're, apparently you're the most contagious a day or two before you show symptoms. They sat in a room with somebody who had an active case of COVID and were for a half hour breathing the COVID. Or they were talking to somebody, somebody was right in their face and they were breathing that person's breath. So it's two interesting things come out of this observation. And we can continue all our other conversations in just a minute. But I think it's important to talk about this. Number one, it appears that, and again, it appears that, please take my qualifications here. I'm not offering medical advice. But it appears that the breakthroughs are largely a function of how much virus you're exposed to. So if you're just walking down the street and somebody with COVID walking by is just breathing and you get, you know, a few million virus particles, no big deal. Your immune system, if you're vaccinated, can apparently deal with that. No problem. Just knock them right out. 
But if you're stuck in a room with that person for 10 or 20 minutes, whether they're sitting next to you eating in an indoor restaurant or whether they're, you know, having a conversation with you in your home or a place of business or whatever, and they've got COVID. And so you get hundreds of millions or hundreds of billions of virus particles. It just overwhelms your immune system, even though you're vaccinated and boom, you end up with COVID. And, but even then, the odds of dying of COVID if you're double vaccinated are very, very vanishingly low to the point of virtually zero. But the bottom line is, yes, we should still be careful. And one of the easiest ways to be careful is like, you know, if you're going to go into a supermarket or a store or any kind of retail establishment or any place where there's a lot of people, even if you're vaccinated, to avoid that double, you know, that huge dose of viruses in the event that somebody there is sick, wear a mask and ask the people around you to wear masks in case they're the ones spreading the virus. This, by the way, is also, I mean, we've only had a couple thousand cases of the flu this year. Normally we get hundreds of thousands, millions of cases of the flu. I mean, this is preventing the flu. It's preventing the common cold. These are good things right? These are good things. I mean, maybe we're going to end up like a lot of Asian cultures that went through SARS back, you know, 20 years ago. And ever since then, they've had very low levels of flu because, hey, you get the slightest sickness, you wear a mask when you go outside. It it has become a social norm in Asia. And I'm guessing that's going to happen in the United States and in Europe as well. So we'll continue that conversation in just a minute. And I got a bunch to add to all that. Stick around. You're listening to Tom Hartman. And uh, let me uh, catch some folks here who have been sitting on hold for a while. Steve in Lake Elsinore, California. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. I called regarding the uh, low unemployment numbers, and I have a thought that maybe one of the reasons that people are not willing to go back to work is just about every job that you take requires a drug test. And I think that it is a creates an impediment to people wanting to go back to work, especially in states like California and, and Oregon, where cannabis is legal and things like that. So I just wanted to hear what you thought about it. Hmm. I, you know, I hadn't considered that. You know, it's been a long time since I've been in the labor market, so I don't know what percentage of jobs require a drug test. But yeah, it makes sense that that might be an, an inhibitor. I mean, let's keep in mind, too, that it was 266,000 jobs created. In other words, that was decisions by employers to hire people. Now, presumably all of those got filled, thus they're in the federal statistics. The stuff about people not being available to work or employers complaining about not being able to get employees, that's a whole separate category of information. And so the smaller number of jobs being created I think has as much to do with the employers as it does the employees. I think it, actually, I think it has mostly to do with the economic conditions around us or the, the health conditions. As I said earlier, you know, only half of America is vaccinated and people are still scared to death of this disease. And even if you've been vaccinated, you can still get it if you're in an area, you know, or if you're with somebody who's heavily infected, you get a big dose of it. So, I mean, the vaccines are, are, you know, very, very effective, 90% effective, but that 95% effective for some of them. But that still means you, you have a 5% chance of getting infected. People don't want to take those kind of risks until they know that there's something approaching herd immunity. The people around them are not carrying the disease and people don't want to go back into restaurants and things like that. So I, so I think that our recovery, our economic recovery has, it's not that it's slowed down, it's that it has not yet taken off. And it won't until we hit probably 60, 70 percent of the population vaccinated and we go from pretty much everywhere in the country still being a danger area. Like here in Portland, I mean, you know, we, we're, we're still we had like, I think, 160 new cases diagnosed yesterday. Uh, we're, we're in the neighborhood of, you know, between 150 and 200 every day, new cases. You know, when that gets down to five or 10, then people in Portland are going to, you know, be going shopping and going out to eat and things like that. But right now I'm not, I'm still reluctant and I'm vaccinated and I'm still reluctant to go out and expose myself to those things. Or, you know, if I was in the job market, I would be reluctant to be going back to work. But I think that a lot of the jobs aren't there yet because the consumers aren't there yet. And we mistake the economy being driven from the bottom up 
for, you know, people not willing to work. So the drug tests, you know, Steve, to your point, probably is an impediment in some jobs. And, you know, I know a couple of my kids are in those in that kind of work, right, because they work at a hospital. But whether that's the key to it all, I doubt it, but I think probably it's a variable. And it would be fascinating to see somebody do some research to try to tease out how much of a variable it is. To the best of my knowledge, nobody has. Steve, do you know if anybody has? Well, actually, myself, Tom, I took early retirement as a teacher. And uh, I've so been you thinking have. about going back as a teacher, but uh, to yep. be real. Yeah, Steve, I'm sorry, we're out, we're out of time, but uh, yeah. oh, thank you. Carol in Egan, Minnesota. Hey, Carol, what's up? Well, I'm going to jump on the same train that you and a lot of your listeners are on. Not just because I have, I live with someone, my husband is uh, high risk, just because of other medical issues. We've all mm-hmm. both had our shots, but I haven't had a cold all year. If I go out and work outside and it's high pollen count, I don't come in sneezing and scratching and everything else. I, I like them. I even said something to my son and he didn't say, oh, mom, you shouldn't be like that. He goes, I'm thinking of the same thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I haven't had a cold. I haven't had the flu. I don't generally get allergies and, you know, staying at home. I haven't worn masks that much here. But so you're just you're going to continue to wear your mask in what you might consider even medium or low risk situations, you know, using the current standards of the CDC now. Yeah. Yeah. And it'll be a long time, I think, before we actually go out for dinner. Not to say we don't call in stuff, but it's just, you know, it's not worth it. Yeah. Yeah, at least for the moment. I mean, you know, we are still a long way from herd immunity. We only have 46% of Americans who are fully vaccinated, about 60% who have one vaccine. And, you know, it's just not for me. Just I'm only speaking for myself. I realize the CDC guidelines are now, if you're fully vaccinated, just go back to normal with your life. I'm not quite ready to do that. I'll do that with family. You know, we had our family over last weekend. You know, a, a couple of our kids and their kids and all that kind of stuff. I'm, you know, and the, but they're all vaccinated. I mean, you know, in fact, they work at the local hospital. You know, I'm, I'm good with that. But if I'm going to go into a retail store, I'm going to wear a mask. If you just judge it by the calls today, you are not, mm-hmm. a, you're not the minority. <laughs> I'm not nuts. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good. We'll see. We'll see. All righty. Thanks a lot. Thank it's you. Uh, it's great to hear from you, Carol. I appreciate the call. Gregory in Laverne, California. Hey, Gregory, what's on your mind? All right, Tom. First, two things. I really appreciate your, your insights on mask and nutrition because I'm really into mm. nutrition and I like your point. What I want to talk about is mask. I agree with you 100%. I do all the errands and stuff. My wife stays inside. Usually, when I go in, I wear latex gloves because even when you come home and you wash your hands, in nursing, we found out that so much crud is in the bed of your nails. I mean, you almost have to have a brush to yeah. really clean it. So well, I latex Gregory, I, I get that for avoiding the flu. You know, I mean, like uh-huh. flu has just like not even shown up in America this year for all practical purposes. But mm-hmm. it seems that this coronavirus is not transmitted by touch. They pretty much can't find cases of it being transmitted by, I forget the scientific word for, you know, stuff that appears on surfaces, but there is a word for it, that it's not transmitted that way. But it is an indoor airborne disease. And if you're, if I'm outdoors, I'm going to feel a whole lot safer. Although if I'm going to like a... Uh, down the street from us, across the river, actually, there is a food fair, you know, a farmer's market on the weekends. I would wear a mask going to that just because I might have some person who's blowing viruses all over the place standing next to me. And uh, whether it's COVID virus or a flu virus, I'd rather not get it. Pardon my interrupting, Gregory. Back to you. That's fine. And I wear double mask and a face shield. And it really bothers me when you say, I just, call me OCD. But I'd rather be safe OCD than not. And when I go yeah. into the market, you see these people trying to be cute with the mask around their mouths, blowing it out their mm. nose. And it just really yeah. bothers me. So I just wanted to thank you for 
addressing this topic. You're welcome. Uh, and thank you, Gregory. Uh, you know, let us not get hysterical, but l- I'm, I'm going to continue to be cautious, frankly. And uh, Gordon in Vancouver, Washington. Hey, Gordon, right, around, right across the river from me. What's up? Yeah, no. Um, hey, Tom. So I'm with you on the mask ambiguity. You know, we're going to go through a transitional thing. And I want to suggest that one thing we can do, I've started doing, is when I meet somebody and I'm not wearing a mask, I steal the V sign from the greatest generation. And, you know, they were flashing it for victory. I flash it to let people know that I'm vaccinated. And I think ah, you just start people flashing the V sign at each Va- other. Vaccinated. And then in the meantime, you know, the rest of the world would be kind of like, what are, what are they doing? Maybe I should be getting right. in on that. We should turn that into a meme of some kind, you know, uh, to show the yeah, you know, let, V I'll for let, victory, V I'll for let, vaccination. Yeah, and I'll let one of your talented listeners uh, do that. But uh, that's my suggestion today. I like it. Uh, I like it a lot. Yeah. Thanks a lot I for the call, Gordon. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Carol in Egan, Minnesota. Hey, Carol, what's up? Oh, hey, Tom. And I know you'll have the names of this a lot better, but my son is in a testing of vaccine. But they're in, according to what I've been told, but I'm not an expert, there's two types of vaccine. One of them would be the kind um, that is dead, and the other one that's alive that you're to, for your body to fight and gain the ability to withstand it. And what I'm thinking is the people that died maybe need the kind of vaccine. And he, and right now it's, and he's, it's Lily that's putting, that is doing this one and that it's, it's designed to work for people who the other vaccines don't work for, because I have a strong feeling that that's what it's going to that's yeah. what it's going to turn the, out to the, be. None of the vaccines that are on the market right now are live virus vaccines. And, well, it wasn't an innovation. I mean, this goes back to cowpox, you know, being used as the variolation is what they called it during the Revolutionary Era when George Washington ordered that all of his soldiers be infected with cowpox so that they wouldn't get smallpox. So they were oh. giving an active living vaccine to people and, and giving them a mild case of the disease, cowpox, which doesn't hurt people. It just causes a blister on your arm. And then that would confer immunity to smallpox because they were very similar viruses. And then, you know, with the polio virus, and I forget if it's Salk or Sabin, but one of those two was a what's called an attenuated virus, a weakened virus. Um, uh-huh. But there are no attenuated or weakened virus vaccines on the market for COVID. The mRNA vaccines, which is uh, Pfizer and Moderna, they cause your body to produce its own antibodies. Actually, they cause your body to produce a protein that is identical to part of the spike protein on the virus that infects people. And then Uh once your body produces that virus or that protein, that particle, your body then produces an immune response to the particle that it just produced. In other words, you you get some cells that are making this and then your immune system goes, holy crap, that's not supposed to be here. And so you get immunity. That's how those vaccines work. The J&J vaccines and uh, the uh, AstraZeneca vaccines, my understanding is that the actual, the vaccines themselves actually contain particles that are grown in, one of them was grown in in yeast, one was grown in uh, some amphibians eggs or something there's there's now they're mm-hmm. doing one in in grown in chicken eggs but what they're growing is not again it's not these viruses it's it's they're using them as little biological machines to manufacture fragments of that spike protein again f- fragments of the the virus that is used to attack people and therefore our bodies produce a response to them so in no case is anybody getting the coronavirus vaccine in any of the vaccines that have been approved? Now, I, I can't speak to a vaccine study that your son may be in or anything like that. I have no, I don't know anything about that. But, you know, if you're referring to my reference to the breakthroughs, which is where people who are fully vaccinated end up getting COVID anyway, 
it yep. really looks like those are almost always cases of people just being so overwhelmed. Now, two things, two possibilities. One, some people have immune systems that are compromised, and so they don't produce antibodies the way they should, and they're more vulnerable to all kinds of infections. So that's yep. some of those people. And then some of those people, you know, they got infected between vaccinations and they weren't fully vaccinated. But the big thing is the overwhelm. When a person is exposed to such an overwhelming viral load, such an overwhelming number of viruses, that their body just, it just, white you know, every immune cell in the body is thrown against them and it's not enough and then they get sick. And that's why, you know, why we should continue to wear masks until we hit herd immunity, or at least in any kind of high density situation. And that's why anybody who is not vaccinated, you don't want them breathing in your face, you know, or well, near and you. I don't want them. I don't want them breathing in my house. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and this is why I'll eat at an outdoor restaurant. Like I said, Louise and I, for the first time in over a year, went to, an, to a restaurant. We sat outside. But I am not willing to sit inside in a restaurant, even though I'm fully vaccinated, for that reason. I, do, you know, I don't want to get one of those breakthrough things. But let's not be agoraphobic about this. Let's not be panicky about this. Let's not you know, change our lives. We're talking about you know, almost 2 million people have been vaccinated here in Oregon. 611 have gotten infected and 8 have died you know, with the coronavirus. That's nothing compared to the number who got vaccinated. Carol, thank you for the call. Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. In other words, the risks are very small. We still have to be paying attention, though, to public health efforts. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Our book today in the Tom Harbin Book Club is Don't Label Me, an Incredible Conversation for Divided Times by Urshad Manji. This is from Chapter 2. It's titled Our Division Problem. Math teachers tell us that to solve a division problem, we must find the common denominator. From its birth, this nation's common denominator has been diversity. I'm not a fan of that word. A neighbor recently sniped, it divides people. Well, that's one slant on diversity. The word itself comes from the Latin, to turn aside, or as some take it, to splinter and separate. But nature would disagree with that interpretation. Every afternoon, Lil, you meander in the park. Here, diversity is the lubricant of a humming engine. Do you breathe in just one aroma? How about two? Five? She's got a bunch of rescue dogs, and she's writing this book to them, FYI. That's some head tilt you've got going, Lily Bean. You're catching on to my crazy talk, aren't you? It's bananas to isolate and enumerate the smells enveloping you. None of them on its own captures the magic of the intermingling whole. You're gaga about the park exactly for its kaleidoscope of scents that jostle with each other and sometimes get up your nose. See where I'm going with this? Diversity itself doesn't divide. It's what we do with diversity that splits societies apart or stitches them together. That paradox is, to do diversity honestly, that we can't be labeling all of diversity's critics as bigots. You disagree, Lil? Well, you're entitled to your opinion, but you haven't let me explain mine. Welcome to the real world, you say? Well, this isn't exactly the real world, is it? You're a conversing canine, for God's sake. Okay, okay, you're right, enough of my defensiveness. Getting my back up won't help you hear me. But if I'm going to work on me, then I need assurance of a fair hearing from you. Deal? Note to self, never expect the mother-daughter relationship to be a picnic in the park. As I was about to explain, Lil, there's more than one way to look at a situation. Some people oppose diversity because they are bigots. Others, though, are skeptical of diversity because how we, its champions, practice it. We're fixated on labeling, and labeling drains diversity of its unifying potential. Since the founding of the U.S. Republic, Americans have extolled the idea of unity in diversity. E pluribus unum, out of many, one became a gallant motto for the union of the original 13 colonies. No argument, Lil, the colonists were themselves colonizers. 
of Native people, of black people, of women and of poor white men. I acknowledge that such labels didn't drop from the clear blue sky. These groups bore the brunt of keeping the United States united. So I'll keep it real too. E pluribus unum has always been an uphill battle. Americans fought a gruesome civil war over the obscenity of slavery, whose promoters reduced human beings to labels. A century earlier, drawing unity from diversity proved to be onerous business of a different sort. It demanded that ardent revolutionaries check their egos. Just before voting on the Constitution, the framers listened to a letter from Benjamin Franklin. He, in turn, had somebody read it out loud. Addressing each signatory as if speaking to him in person, Franklin confessed in the letter, quote, I do not entirely approve of this convention at present, but, sir, I am not sure I shall never approve it. For having lived long, I have experienced many instances of being obliged by better information or fuller consideration to change opinions, even on important subjects, which I once thought right but found to be otherwise. Take a moment to digest this, Lily. A world-class rebel states publicly that he doesn't know it all, that he's missing something obvious to others, that he might be wrong. Was Ben Franklin written off as a wimp? Nope. His fellow framers knew the value of humility in making the impossible happen. For America's revolutionaries, breaking free from a British despot would be the relatively simple part. Much harder would be replacing despotism with something democratic and doable. The framers' solution? To enshrine and institutionalize diversity of viewpoint. Their logic? In a republic of vastly different regions, cultures, peoples, and perspectives, there's nation-building power in airing disagreements. Diversity of opinion as a common denominator. Sheer genius, Lil. In Why Societies Need Dissent, the legal scholar Cass Sunstein describes this funky formula as, quote, the framer's greatest innovation. Americans, I'm thrilled to tell you, still aspire to that vision. In June 2018, the Harris Poll released findings about what unites and what divides our country. Among the factors that unite, being open to alternative viewpoints. But the deflating reality is people generally mean that other people should be open to their viewpoints. Today, living the revolutionary ideal seems a non-starter, and for various reasons. Hands down, the most controversial reason is the changing makeup of America. It's a landmine of fraught labels, frail identities, and engulfing emotions. Can we talk about it? In this country, brown, black, and multiracial babies outnumber white babies. Beyond our major cities, small towns have started to mix it up. Take Storm Lake, Iowa. The editor of its community newspaper estimates that, quote, 88% of children in our elementary schools are children of color. We speak 21 languages, end quote. Sarah Smarsh, a journalist from Kansas, says that in the past 10 years alone, and thanks to the rise of agricultural agribusiness, her farming community has become home to workers from Mexico, Central America, and the Middle East. That's a bundle of change in a flash of time. Thank God America has a history of muddling through. Problem is, Americans can't depend on the past to predict that the future will be tickety-boo. Sure, some prejudice has subsided as successive waves of migrants have integrated. And she continues from there. The book, Don't Label Me, by Irshad Manji. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, this just popped up at the top of the Washington Post. And I just wanted to flag this for you. And it gets into this question of the CDC and, you know, should the CDC be promoting this new mask rule? The headline is coronavirus vaccines may not work in some people. It's because of their underlying conditions. Early research shows 15 to 80 percent of people with certain medical conditions such as specific blood cancers or organ transplants, are generating few antibodies from receiving coronavirus vaccines. So they tell the story of Maria Hoffman. She is 39. She's fully vaccinated. She wants to rejoin the world. But she had a kidney transplant. And so she's on immunosuppressed drugs. And it turns out that even though she's fully vaccinated, she didn't produce any antibodies because she's on these drugs that suppress her immune system, which means that if she gets near some mask hole, so, you know, one of these COVID deniers, one of these Trump followers who is refusing to wear a mask and is carrying an infection that they may not even know that they have, she can get COVID and she could die. 
And she's not alone. She's one of, you know, many millions of Americans. I'm thinking the CDC is just moving a little too fast on this. I really do. And I think that, you know, this decision to say, oh, it's all good, you know, uh, take off your mask, go out there in the world. It's kind of predicated on the assumption. I mean, they're not saying this out loud, but you have to imagine that this is really what they're thinking is that, well, you know, most people who are vaccinated are probably going to end up with a COVID infection because, you know, two thirds of the country is not fully vaccinated. And so if you walk into a store, odds are you're going to inhale the virus and you're going to end up with COVID, but you'll never know it because you're vaccinated and therefore you're going to be asymptomatic or at the very worst, you're going to feel like you had a cold for a couple of days, you know, a little sore throat, something like that. And so, I mean, this is kind of the assumptions. And so therefore, hey, what the heck? We don't need no stinking masks. Well, you know, there are a number of people for whom this will be a crisis. And I am just concerned. I think they have not. I think that, you know, there's they're saying, you know, Biden said, let the CDC run independent of me, of politics. Whereas Trump said the CDC has to say whatever I want them to say. And he totally corrupted the CDC and had them lying through their teeth and coming up with reports that justified pushing people back into meatpacking plants and all kinds of, I mean, just insane stuff that happened at the CDC during the Trump administration. I think Biden went too far in the other direction. I think he should have told them that anything that has to do with something that is so large, that affects so much of America as mask recommendations for the whole country during a pandemic, should at the very least be run past the White House before they're publicly announced. And that's, I mean, the CDC told the White House what was coming, but then they made the announcement and the White House was like, uh, I don't know, my personal opinion. Maybe I'm wrong. Time will tell, right? Time will tell. Tom Harbin here with you and you know that you're wrong, but you fear you're right. You suspect you're out of sync and think that you're out of your mind. Everything you know is wrong. Everything you know is wrong, as the fire sign theater says. Well, yeah, here we go. TikTok users are now claiming that the unvaccinated are going to inherit the earth because all of us who got vaccines which is why Sean and Nate and Joyce and I are all here sitting here in the studio now. All of us who got vaccines are going to be dead within a couple of years because the, I am Optimus Prime, says this voice in this TikTok message. And I send this message to any surviving Autobots taking refuge among the stars. We are here. We are waiting. It's like, you know, Scientology meets... Yeah, I don't, I don't even know what you would call it. You know, it's, it's, Scientology means crazy, except that, you know, it's kind of like, that's like, you know, saying crazy means crazy. But these two memes, there's two principal memes now that are floating around Facebook, or excuse me, around TikTok. Facebook's actually done, a, or at least is attempting to suppress this kind of stuff. But TikTok seems to be embracing it and actively feeding this content, according to this uh, article over at vice.com. It's titled, Unvaccinated TikTok Users Believe They Will Be the Lone Survivors. And some of the claims say that the the people with the vaccine are gonna die in three years as a generous estimate. And others uh, just, you know, say, oh, the vaccines are not real vaccines. These are experimental treatments. Right, okay. Cindy in Morton Grove, Illinois. Hey, Cindy, what's on your mind? So I have a unique perspective. Earlier you were, you were talking about that $300 extra unemployment payment. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a, a, a very small business, small brick-and-mortar store in a summer tourist town. So I'm busy four months out of the year, summer and Christmas. And we're just going into our ninth year. And finally, at least pre-COVID, the last few years, I was finally turning a little profit where I could pay myself something. Not a lot, you know, maybe 15 grand a year, maybe 20 grand a year. Just, you know, it's been slowly gaining. I've been there. Well, then, I've, I, in so fact, then, every business I've started, I've, I've paid myself zero for at least the first two years. 
Right, right. Well, I did for like the first six or seven years. So, yep. so now fast forward to now and the situation we're in. Yes, I agree. I wish after Reagan and trickle down and all that stuff that didn't work, I wish we didn't slide into no more middle class and wage stagnation and all that. But we are where we are now, and we can't. But the big corporations can afford to raise wages, but little mom and pops like me can't. I'm in a town where minimum wage is nine and a quarter an hour, also very low cost of living, and I pay really well at eleven fifty to twelve fifty an hour. Mm-hmm. But after July fifteenth, when we reopened after COVID last summer, I couldn't get anybody to come back and work because of this unemployment payment. I don't understand why they weren't paying that to me, the small business owner, so that I could pass it along to my employees, so that I could stay in business, and they would have that extra money to pay for childcare. That's how they did it. That's how they, that, that is how it was done in all the European countries. I know that's how it was done in Australia. I have a friend who lives there. I know how, that's how it was done in Israel. Pretty much every other country in the world made those payments through the businesses. In other words, they supported the businesses and to keep their employees employed, even though oh, they weren't absolutely. working. And and and, and, and I'm with you on that. Where we go from here? Well, where we're going to go from here, Cindy, is that is that over the course of the next two or three months, you're going to see those that three hundred dollar a month bonus, as it were, expires in September. And I would be astonished if it gets renewed. I realize that there will be people pushing to renew it. Bernie has already kind of come out and said, I'm going to lead that. But I would be astonished if that gets renewed. And at that point, it's going to be tight enough to be on unemployment. And, and Illinois, like I'm pretty sure pretty much every state in the union, limits unemployment benefits now to a certain period of time, to a year or in some cases, in some states, two years. But it's not like you can go on an unemployment for the rest of your life. So, you know, you're going to have financial pressure that's going to bring people back into the workplace. Um, and, and I get that. And, you know, it's, it's just incumbent upon, I think, every business to say, you know, how can we do our business? But, I, you know, I have no magical answer for you, Cindy. But, I, you know, I get where you're at. And thank you for the call. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.